Welcome to this week's episode of Better Off Red. This week, we're speaking with Mukun Rati, a law student and socialist at UC Berkeley, about the experiences he and others have had confronting the far right for the past few years at Berkeley and the challenges of fighting the right in general. Before we get to that, though, we're going to talk about lots of other challenges in our opener about this moment in the Trump presidency when the normalization, the rising polls, et cetera, and what does it mean to be trying to you know, be steadfast in building a left at a moment like this when things aren't all going our way. So stick around. Okay, so this may be an unpleasant topic, but we thought we would start off this week's episode with a discussion really of Trump and where we're at in the Trump presidency. I think this is a moment, you know, I'll just say for myself and Danny can speak for himself. Uh, yes, wh- I can. Thank you, <laughs> Jen. Where a lot of us, I think, are feeling, you know, the reality of a Trump administration has set in. Um there's he's not going to be impeached. In fact, his poll ratings have started to recover um, and are hovering in the low 40s, which isn't massive, but is a significant recovery. Um, a lot of people, you know, in polls saying the country's headed in the right direction. And at the same time, you know, the news is coming out like I literally just read that they're going to start these tent cities for migrant children who've been separated from their parents on the on the border. Um, we're expecting the Janus decision, which would get rid of essentially make um, all public sector workers right to work um, and be a devastating blow to the unions. We're expecting that decision to come down any day. We're expecting a decision from the Supreme Court to uphold the Muslim travel ban. We're expecting that to come down any day. And so, you know, I think a lot of people are feeling like, I don't know if helpless, but like, what do we do in the face of this? What is it going to take to like fight back against the Trump juggernaut? Well, yeah, and just to pile on a little bit more about bad news and some of what we're facing <laughs> is that I, I think it feels to an ex, to to whatever degree Donald Trump can feel like he's moving in a coherent direction, it feels like he's finding his stride as a hard right winger. After a year between mm-hmm. sort of oscillating back and forth between things, he's jettisoned a lot of the so-called moderates in his administration, even up the ante further, clearly on his anti-immigrant um Tactics, particularly at the border, where every day is a new horror, but also, you know, conf- more confidently shaking up the uh, the neoliberal world order with his vision of, of of hard right nationalism on the global stage and also on the right wing stage. Mm-hmm. And like you mentioned before, his poll numbers are stabilized; like he is standing for something, and the ro- he's winning the entire Republican Party base right. to his 
vision. The Republican Party is his now. You know what I mean? And then we should be clear, the Republican Party uh, base does not represent half the country. You know, when you, it, it represents maybe a quarter to a third of the country. That's a lot of people still to be really coming coming around to this kind of hard right message. On our side, there's a lot of different things we can say. Clearly, I think people who listen to this podcast would agree that the Democratic Party as a whole is putting forward very little coherent message or opposition. But I think even more on the ground, we're seeing lots of outrage and fear and rage and, and about what Trump is doing. But we also have to be honest that the size of actual protests, when you think about the um, in response to Israel's massacres in Gaza, which I've never seen such a mainstream condemnation of mm -hmm. Israel, the protests are very small. The outrage about what's happening at the border is huge. The protests are very small. These are issues where fear reigns supreme among mm -hmm. Arabs and Muslims in this country, among immigrants, but also the um, failure of larger institutions that shouldn't be as afraid, the unions, the civil rights organizations, et cetera, that I think are so focused now on it's all out for midterm elections, you know, seeing the only way to fight as elections, it produces an environment that actually perpetuates then the fear because when there's not the larger protests, it then perpetuates the idea that the only thing we can do is get out the vote in November, but it means on the ground, there can be very little place for people to actually build the resistance that they've that they want to build. I think we want to get into that question of the resistance, but first I think it's worth maybe unpacking a little bit, like what that sort of mainstream, like mainstream politics looks like, because I think one of the really the ironies of this moment is that you have a man, Trump, who ran as the anti-establishment candidate, right? Like he was the guy who was going to upend the entire political system. He was like too horrific for anybody to contemplate. I, he is too horrific for me to contemplate. But like, you know, mainstream politicians, mainstream journalists, like there was a sense that like there was not going to be any legitimacy for this presidency. And now we're over a year in and actually, that's exactly what's happening is that he's being given legitimacy, even within the framework of institutional opposition. He's treated as kind of part of the establishment and he's actually gaining he's gaining power because of the commitment like that mainstream politicians have to the integrity of the two party system. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, because I'm trying to square. I completely agree with what you're saying about the problem of Trump being normalized. And then I'm also trying to square that thought, which I agree with, with something Naomi Klein said last week, which I agree with, which was the idea that this isn't normal. This isn't normal. All this is unprecedented. When you talk about Trump itself can be disorienting. And mm -hmm. do you know what I'm saying? And I'm, and I'm trying to figure out how both of those things are true at the same time. Well, yeah, I mean, I think we have to be careful how we talk about it because I think there's continuity, but there's discontinuity. It's true that the whole idea that this isn't normal, this isn't normal, what Trump's doing um, is so unprecedented is, um, you know, when that's coming from sort of mainstream opposition figures like the Democratic Party who have signed off on policies that increase border security, um, that legally lay the groundwork for the kinds of actions that Trump is taking today, that rings really hollow and it can be really um, demobilizing because it's just so overwhelming that it feels like you can't place it anywhere in history. At the same time, I think it's also true Trump is doing something different. I mean, mm -hmm. the sort of rounding up of, you know, essentially camps for migrant children, close to 2,000 children at this point who've been separated 
from their parents, um, the open calls of like racism and the green light to literally like, you know, in the next segment, we're going to be talking to Mukund about the fighting the far right, but like the green light to the far right. The fact that this administration just said that, you know, domestic violence is no longer a basis for refugee status. So I, I think it's it's both. And I think we have to understand those things together, both what's dangerous about Trump, um, but also sort of where he comes from. And I think in a sense, you're right, that legitimization comes from the fact that he's still within the spectrum mm -hmm. of American politics. Right. And I can't help but think also that some of the um, the overwhelming um, push on most of the left, you know, from liberals all the way through most of the left on electoralism as a strategy also serves, however accidentally, because this is not many people's intentions, to further that normalization. Because mm -hmm. instead of it being like, these are things that need to be resisted right now, right. it's like, these are, well, that's his policies. He has his turn. And then in two years or four years, we have, you know, we put our ideas up against it. And and it, it so again, it, it's it's one of many issues to talk about when we, when we talk about that strategy. But it does, I think, serve to further that idea that yeah, we you know we wait till the proper time when it's election to to resist this as opposed to being like and and it, many people of course don't would want to resist it now but aren't the 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 size of the forces and institutions that are involved in actually building any type of resistance that can do that now is so little you know people's inboxes are flooded with like we have to stop Trump but then you open the emails and it's always like give us money and we're turning out the vote in right. November you know what right, I mean? right 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 and I mean I think. It's interesting what you say, because I think there are so many people who are looking for a way to do something. Yeah. So, you know, we talked um, a couple of episodes back in our um, discussion with the folks from New York City for Abortion Rights and Seattle Clinic Defense about like women showing up at meetings saying, I'm sick of writing letters. I'm sick of calling my congressperson. And, you know, there was it was interesting. I there was this Facebook post that kind of went viral of this woman who was on an airplane with a woman who had just gone out of a detention center and she was with her child, her young six-year-old, and she had the ankle monitor bracelet on and her six-year-old had the ankle monitor bracelet on and this woman just started talking to her. And so she posted pictures of this and like about her conversation. And what was fascinating to me is all the comments on that thread, like one I remember was this woman who's like, I'm an older woman and I don't understand how Facebook works. How did you just tell the whole world about this? And like, we need more of this and what can I do? And what can I do that's writing more than a letter? But the gap between that sentiment and organization is so massive. That's where I think some of the feeling of helplessness comes from. Um, okay, well, so then that raises the question of what, is there to be done besides helplessness? And I think what Jen and I want to talk about here isn't just like urging our, each other and others to keep fighting because, you know, that's that's <laughs> obvious. It's it's beyond our control to a large degree whether protests right now about what is happening at the border number in the dozens or the hundreds or the thousands or the hundreds of thousands, which is what we really should be happening. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting, and again, um, this anticipates our interview with Mokun, but, you know, it's not that there haven't been protests. There have actually been like some of the biggest protests have happened under Trump since he got 
um, elected, you know, millions of people coming out in the streets uh, for the Women's March. When the first Muslim ban first went into effect, like thousands of people flooded the airports, a very spontaneous. But I was really reminded of something that Anand Gopal said at the anti-inauguration, like the day that Trump was inaugurated, where he talked about like what resistance actually needs to be. And the point of all this is that a single protest as important as they are, a single protest has never changed anything, okay? But the social movements that link protest, that is the lifeblood of resistance. Okay. That is the only thing, ultimately, that's ever changed anything. And, and by that I mean civil disobedience, boycotts, sit-ins, prison solidarity networks, abortion funds, sanctuary spaces, all of it, all of it. All of it because resistance, resistance isn't a moment, resistance isn't a state of mind. Resistance is a tapestry which is collective and enduring. It's so enduring that the status quo cannot sleep at night. So I think what's important about what he's saying there is that he's not dismissing the protests, but he's saying that we have to build the connective tissues between those protests. We have to be able to link that to ongoing organizing. And the thing I would add that he doesn't talk about there that I think is so important is there need to be spaces, collective spaces, where people who come out to these protests, people who are angry, um, have a way to get involved in something that's more than just door knocking for a politician or that's just being called out to the next demonstration or making a donation or writing a letter, but needs to be spaces for people to have actual input into what it would like, what our demands are, what we want to do, what our visions are, what it would look like to actually organize. I feel like that's the missing ingredient in some ways. Right. And I would, I would add to that, that I think sometimes there's, um, in organizing spaces and organizing culture, there can be a slightly narrowing or less political approach that just is like, oh, in between the protests, you just organize. But without necessarily the content, part of that tapestry is also, to me, moments like this, one of the things that's happening on a hopeful sign is the rethinking of and of some of the ideas that we're going to need to fight. Just for instance, around what's everything Trump is doing at the border, his horrible policies, this is an incredible low point for the immigrants' rights struggle and even the size of the protests and, you know, in, uh, around the country, the people doing this work, it's great, but it, it, it comes nowhere near what we need. But at the same time, there's a new, in the sort of emergence of people starting talking about the demand about abolish ICE, right? Something that, that's being brought up. We need more spaces to explore what is the basis on which our protests around immigrants' rights, both right now when they're not that big and in the future when they're larger, are going, are going to be demanded. Because frankly, the majority of people in recent years protesting just around this issue of immigrant rights have been trapped in a framework that of that the Democrats have often called comprehensive immigration reform, which actually has never had anything to offer people crossing the border in the future mm -hmm. and refugees. It's all about mm -hmm. a trade of quote unquote secure borders for mm -hmm. a path to citizenship for some of the people who are already here. So ideologically and politically, we've actually been in a real blind alley for a long time. And mm -hmm. so I think it's also important to say that sometimes these are the moments when people are confronted just by how horrible Trump is, but we're also being confronted by the fact that there is no mm -hmm. path to citizenship under Trump. You know what I mean? We have to, we've got to rethink strategies around, this is about just straight up delegitimizing the notion of ICE, you know what I mean? Or things like that. And that's just one example among many. I think the conversations we've had on past episodes with Samaya around Palestine, you know, the debates that are happening about Syria, mm -hmm. all these things point to really important um, discussions that are happening that I think 
it's moments like these that are also critical for politically hashing out what are the ideas that are going to be leading struggles when they actually do get bigger. Because frankly, I mean, the first year of Trump's presidency saw huge protests. We haven't mm-hmm. seen that side. You know, that, that's partly, I think, what we're what we're trying to get at. Right. I mean, I think just to build on that, it makes a difference if a person seeing what's going on just continues to feel helpless and enraged or if someone just goes to one demonstration and goes home or whether they're able to connect with people and feel like, okay, it makes a difference for me to learn this history and to go through this. Like, I'm just thinking about this meeting we had, um, the International Socialist Organization hosted a meeting um, about Gaza uh, with Sumeya actually right after the massacre. And it was, you know, the demonstrations were tiny, but we had like 80 people show up on like one night's notice, I know, essentially, that's to this meeting. And I'm just, I'm just remembering this guy who's like, I was reading my Facebook feed, I was reading the news, and I saw what was happening, and I just couldn't bear the sense that I was sitting at home watching this and continuing to live my life as this is going on. And, you know, you can't say to him, okay, well, you come to this protest and it's going to stop tomorrow because this has been a 70-year struggle. But it makes a difference if he walks out of that meeting feeling like he's organized, that he's connected with people, like that there are going to be study groups and day schools about Palestine where you can learn about those things, where you can connect with other organizers. And that can feel really small. But the alternative to doing that work that feels small and hard and long is either not doing the work at all or just throwing yourself into things, like just hoping that doing anything um, will make a difference. And it's like we have to we have to start to construct a left um, that can take advantage of these moments and look for those opportunities, but can also build when it's really difficult. And we've seen that possibility because we've seen the massive growth of groups like Democratic Socialists of America, the ISO has grown, other left organizations have grown, publications have grown. So we see that possibility, but it can be easy to just feel like if you're not, you know, if it's not changing tomorrow, then what's the point of it all? But that's precisely the moment where we have to be looking for those people who are becoming political and becoming angry and finding ways to draw them in. Right. I mean, I was thinking earlier in the winter, um, the ISO branch I was in had a study group around the book, Black Liberation and Socialism. And this is at a point when the size of protest, the Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter movement has has struggled, you know, un, uh, under Trump. It drew out 50 to 60 people for a study group, you know what I mean? For right. a three-part study group. It was so apparent um, that the ideas that have been raised by this movement, even though the movement is, is struggling to find its footing in an activist way, are just are so out there in the ether. I also think the fact that the Socialism Conference, which we've been relentlessly promoting on this <laughs> podcast, um, I think it's you know it's on pace to have similar numbers um, to the one last year, which was the largest ever by a wide margin, and that was in the height of sort of the mass protests against Trump at a time this year when the size of the protests have gone down, but the number of people traveling to Chicago to attend, you know, a four-day conference around a range of revolutionary socialist politics is the same, is very striking. And But you don't feel that every day because right. there's not, you know, last year at this time, we were in a period of there's the airport protest, the women's march, the science march, the climate march, you know, mm-hmm. every, and look, there's been the parkland, like there's been the, the protests in, in mm-hmm. after the, the gun violence, there, there's things have been happening, but, mm-hmm. you know, it, it clearly we're in a different moment and it, it can be easy to lose sight of the fact that there's still such a wide number of people look, trying to make sense of what's going on and looking for radical answers. 
Right. Well, one of the dangers, of course, right, is that a gap opens up between people who have been organizing for a while and the people who are becoming newly outraged. And you can you can forget that and forget to connect with people who are feeling that outrage. And I even see it now where people are like, oh, well, didn't you know that they've been attacking people at the border for a decade? And it's like, well, no, maybe people didn't know. You know what I mean? And now they do. And instead of like blaming people for what they didn't know yesterday, why not help them understand more tomorrow? It's sad. When I, once in a while, I find myself becoming that person. I was <laughs> never that person. I was always resolutely against that. And then in my dark, in my dark, cranky older moments, I, I get like that. But I, I completely agree. But that's part of it too. Is you can fall into that, but you can pull yourself back out of it. You know what right. I mean? <laughs> like absolutely. I mean, I think the other thing, you know, we probably should be coming to a close soon, but I think the other thing for us to constantly keep in mind is that people do fight back. They don't just put up with this stuff forever. They can win. It was only 12 years ago. Wow, it was 12 years ago. But still, it was only 12 years ago that millions of people, millions of immigrants, undocumented, documented citizens um, took to the streets and defeated the Sensenbrenner bill, which was a vicious anti-immigrant bill. And then that was followed by investing our hopes in the Democrats to sort of pass some kind of reform. And that's how we got to the point we're at now. But we can expect mass demonstrations like that again, I would argue. But the question is then, do they win or do they lose? And that has to do with the kind of political alternatives that are on offer. And those political alternatives have to be bigger than just the next election cycle. I mean, if there's anything we've learned, it's that being at the mercy of the mainstream political establishments, like they have their ideas about what's important. I mean, the fact that Democrats right now are making a bigger deal about the fact that they're worried that Trump might draw down troops from South Korea um, than they are about what's going on at the border gives you a sense of like what their priorities are. And it's like, we have to start to build our own independent movements that go beyond the election cycles and organize now and understand that this is the beginning of a longer term, longer term process. And, you know, maybe that sounds like a little bit of a pep talk from Better Off Red, but sometimes I think this is one of those weeks where you kind of need a little bit of a pep talk because we have to kind of keep each other like focused on how we build that kind of that tapestry of resistance. Cause I really do believe it's possible. And I certainly believe it's necessary. It's striking that we're having this conversation just a few months after, or maybe even less than a month or so after the last of the teacher strikes happened, right. where we've gotten this <laughs> glimpse of a non-electoral form of power. Right. That's much more traditionally what socialists think. One, it speaks to how bad Trump is that it can feel like that's, a long time ago or whatever. But also I think it speaks to the fact that we're just in a moment where even when there's the largest strike wave and the most, um, with, with the most wild catty elements to it that we, you know, even though they're not wildcats, but that we've seen in, in generations. And I think the important thing about the teacher strikes though, is that, you know, the tens of thousands of people, the teachers, their family members, their communities who went through them aren't going to forget that experience. And I think that that's a glimpse of the kind of future we can look to and the future that we're preparing for. And I think we always want to be looking for those opportunities. And, you know, I think there are there are openings like we had the episode with um, the folks doing clinic defense and fighting for abortion rights, which can feel like a really beleaguered struggle right now here in the United States. But internationally, it's like we talked about winning in Ireland. Argentina just took a major step forward um, to legalizing abortion, where its house just voted narrowly um, to legalize abortion after 
thousands, tens of thousands of women came out on the streets and were struggling. And I got to say, watching the scenes of those women jumping up and down and hugging each other and crying when they heard the news, it's like, that's part of this picture too. And I think that that's really important. Before we get to our interview, I uh, just want to say we mentioned the Socialism Conference before. If you haven't heard about it yet, go to socialismconference.org. It's July 5th to July 8th in Chicago, and it's incredible. And um, we just want to take this moment to remind folks that we have set up a Patreon account. For people who don't know what Patreon is, it's essentially a crowdfunding source where you can support independent ventures like this podcast with a small monthly donation. Um, it really can be any amount from $1 to $20 uh, a month, but it really, it helps us get equipment, do advertising, um, get the word out about this podcast. And if you want to support us, then you can go to patreon.com backslash better off red pod. That's patreon.com backslash better off red pod. And as of now, we don't have anything behind a paywall there or any special incentives. Please feel free to like drop us a note there or drop us a note at our email at betteroffredpod at gmail.com. If there are things that you would like to see or things that you think we should be um, doing in terms of incentives, or if you have ideas for guests or topics, um, we're starting to do our summer lineup. Um, we're really excited about it, but we really want to hear what topics you're interested in. Really any feedback that you have for us as a new podcast we really want to hear from our listeners all you false pretenders and your freaky contenders trying to be the first in my own opinion you are not defending you you are the worst you make the world like a circus and you're trying to curse us cruel they don't know about but we want to be the so we want to be the lonely one time around The election of Donald Trump has meant lots of horrible things, and we've talked about many of them in previous episodes. But one issue we haven't discussed yet is the rise of the far right, from alt-right trolls like Richard Spencer and Milo Yiannopoulos to actual fascist groups and everything in between. These groups have been less in the news lately, partly because of so many other horrible things in the news lately, but also because after the horrific murder of Heather Heyer in Charlottesville and the other right-wing attacks last summer, there's been a series of mass anti-fascist mobilizations, Boston, Portland, Gainesville, many other places that have forced the far right to back down from its most aggressive provocations. And this has actually been one of the key victories that our side has had um, over the past year and a half. But that in no way means that the far right has gone away. And that's one of the reasons why we're so glad to have Mukun Rati here with us today. Yeah, in a lot of ways, um, I think Berkeley has become the both the epicenter of the far right attack and has also become kind of a microcosm for all of the strategic debates that have played out nationally and all across the country about what it's going to take to fight 
the far right. And we want to kind of get into those and absorb some of those lessons. But I actually thought it might be helpful for us to start, Mukund, with just asking you what the climate is like on campus and in, you know, in the city of Berkeley in the aftermath of all these fights and with the far right presence on campus. What has that what has that done? Yeah, so thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, the atmosphere has changed a lot over the last couple of years, as you can imagine. Um, right now, I think there um, you know, is a sense of trepidation. Um, a lot of people on campus over the last year have expressed publicly and in private fear, um, like anger at what's been happening, both at the provocateurs that have come to campus um, and the students who have invited them. And then I guess also the campus administration, which a lot of um, staff members in particular have expressed has not been helping them to feel safe on campus. Um, one example that sticks with me um, was a panel that the new chancellor of Berkeley hosted. Uh, it was called a faculty panel on free speech. It was kind of interesting to walk into the room uh, and see the all white panel and then the largely people of color and black audience of students <laughs> and staff members waiting to hear from them. Um, the panel went on and on about this and that about free speech. And then every single person in the audience who spoke said, I feel unsafe on this campus. You have literal fascists coming to campus. The administration is spending literally millions of dollars on police to shut down major areas of the campus that people walk through. And I'm expected to come to work every day um, and be fine with this and go about my normal business. Um, and uh, so at, at this point, when in the last couple months, there has been no coordinated far-right activity on campus. I mean, last couple months, meaning we're now in the summer, even before that, the last couple months of the semester, um, there, you know, there's a sense of trepidation. It's unclear what's going to happen. There's also, you know, people are going about doing their normal things. There's other important political things happening. Um, the UC workers just recently went on strike for a few days um, because they're in the middle of contract negotiations. So um, there are important things that are happening, um, but, you know, this is all in the backdrop of the last year and a half, two years being, um, you know, we literally, there are Nazis beating up people in the streets. And I think that is in everyone's mind. It's definitely in my mind. So, sorry, I was just going to say, you're a socialist active on the campus. And um, I believe that you guys had some of your meetings targeted by the right. People show up to try to videotape. Um, can you talk a little bit about what like about that and also has that had a chilling effect on organizing and what's been the administration's response? Yeah. So, um, there have been a lot of different meetings by different groups that have been targeted by the far right on campus. In fact, one of the times, um, a meeting of the international socialist organization was targeted, um, ironically, or I don't know if ironic is the right word, but, um, the fascists who came to our door and tried to get in, were actually targeting a different socialist group, um, and they found our meeting by mistake, um, you know, which and, and you know, this wasn't the only instance that that happened. Um, there have been multiple times over the past couple of years where we've gone out to get pizza and beer after organizing meetings and we've run into fascists hanging out at the same bars. Um, you know, we've tried to keep the confrontations to a minimum. But the reality is, is that like the far right has chosen this place to target and um, even when they're not making coordinated attacks like they did at our meeting, they're around. Um, and that's a reality that everybody has to confront, not just the organized left. But it definitely has had a chilling effect. Um, I mean, it's, you know, at a very basic level, people like me and like my comrades and friends, it was very scary, um, especially after Heather Heyer was murdered. 
there. Um, I remember having a conversation with one of my fellow socialists and I was just like, look, you know, we were having all these conversations about free speech, about tactics, about when and how to confront. Like, what do I do with this knowledge that they could just drive a fucking car? And can I curse? I, yes. Yeah. Like with the, the knowledge that they could drive a fucking car into a protest, you know, like how do we deal? And that's something that we have to talk about and that we have to like think about moving forward. Um, so there's like a, there's like that kind of basic effect that it has of just fear among the organizers. But then, yeah, I mean, among people in general, you know, it's hard. Um, and we saw this with how protest numbers changed, um, especially in, as, um, you know, in the, in the fall and the semester after Trump was elected when Milo came and then there were repeated clashes in the streets of Berkeley between far right groups and, um, you know, quote unquote Antifa. Um, as those escalated, we saw um, the numbers at even non-confrontational protests dwindle. Mm. Um, and I would say it's a combination of the fear of, of seeing videos of these people getting beat up and the fact that the administration was spending literally millions of dollars. Um, and this has all been you know, reported on in, in um, uh, the Daily Californian and other news sources, literally millions of dollars on police to um, occupy Sproul Plaza, to occupy other major places of uh, student demonstration. Um, so it's just, you know, if, if you're someone who wants to come out and protest, that's kind of a scary situation to, to like put yourself in. And so we're going to come back soon to, you know, some of the chronology of the events and, mm -hmm. the, you know, the protests around Milo and, 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 the, and the aftermath of that. But just one other thing that it, from reading um, some of the things you and other people have written from Berkeley that is um, it's really striking and disturbing about what's what's been um, <laughs> I'm being directed to speak into the mic. Um, that just seems really disturbing is also the, the the complicity of ranging from campus Republican group to far right groups. You know, the, some of the people who, who tried to infiltrate your meetings, I remember reading, were, were, were just saying point blank, oh, Heather Hired died of a heart attack, right? So that kind of menacing, threatening stuff. But, but that it seems that uh, the spectrum ranging from open fascist to the campus Republican Party also mirrors some of what we're seeing nationally with in all sorts of localities, the Republican, you know, local Republican parties acting in cahoots with fascists and, and, and near fascists. But then, so I don't know if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I think that point you made at the end there is absolutely correct that um, the full spectrum of the far right and the so-called, you know, regular right wing or whatever is represented in Berkeley. And what we have seen is the way both that that so-called moderate right wing has shifted to the right um, and has adopted um, connections to outright Nazi groups. Um, and also, even if those people continue to, you know, pretend to be moderates, pretend to be, oh, we're just patriots, whatever, <laughs> they, um, you know, openly affiliate with um, mm -hmm. people who um, have far right politics. Um, the way that I've put it to people is that the Berkeley College Republicans gave the far right an institutional foothold in Berkeley, and they gave them an access to the Berkeley campus with all of its prestige, with all of like the accompanying ideology around free speech and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, it it had its uh, its fits and starts. You know, they they repeatedly tried to bring provocateurs and they were shut down um, either by protesters or by the university. But what the combination of Trump being elected and kind of the initial provocateurs being brought did was it gave the far right an opportunity to put itself on display, to have an institutional foothold on campus, 
and to use that ideology around free speech to basically wage a war on the left. Um, and that war happened both ideologically, which is what 90% of the discussion around free speech is. It's just nonsense that the far right has been peddling and that the mainstream has kind of adopted. Mm -hmm. And then the war also happened physically. Um, and I think that part tends to be um, really left out of the discussion around free speech and the far right is that um, most of what they do, no reasonable person could describe as speech. It's, it's physical and, you know, very real attacks. And I think that Heather Heyer being killed kind of blew that out of the water for at least a period of time. Um, but those talking points still haven't gone away um, around, around free speech. Yeah, it's interesting. We actually saw the same dynamic here in New York City where the Republicans um, at Columbia University also organized a slate of speakers earlier this year that um, – under the guise of free speech, I, I think they even called it like a free speech um, program um, that brought really far right um, provocateurs and including Tommy Robinson of the English Defense League, who just had a demonstration of thousands of far right activists and fascists in Britain. Um, and so you can kind of see how, you know, they talk about that as just like the speaker or whatever. But this is someone who's actually organizing you know, a real movement on the ground in Britain against, you know, Arabs and Muslims, against South Asians. So it would be worth maybe um, talking about how this issue of free speech is being used and kind of weaponized by the right. And then what some of the responses have been from administrations, from different groups on campus, different sort of political currents. Yeah. So I think that's also a good way to carry out the discussion is to start with the fact that it is being weaponized um, and that you know, I would love to have a genuine discussion about free speech with all of my friends, with all of my allies. But the reality is, is that it's clouded by um, a bunch of nonsense propaganda um, that the far right has been peddling. Um, and it ranges from um, saying stuff that is outright, you know, obviously dubious and obviously disingenuous, like saying, like the Berkeley College Republicans saying, we want to bring Miley Annapolis to campus or bring Tommy Robinson to Columbia um, because we want to have a genuine discussion about different views and different politics. And, you know, we should have um, rigorous debate. The idea, I mean, it's so absurd to say, oh, we should have an intellectual debate with Miley Annapolis for obvious reasons. And yet they get away with saying it. Um, and that to me was what was really um eye-opening about the last couple of years is that no matter how ridiculous the far-right talking points were, the liberal, um, you know, what you might call main, the mainstream liberals, whether it's the campus administrators or, um, you know, the New York Times opinion writers or the like local radio station liberal host, they all uncritically adopted that, um, those talking points and said, you know, why is it that the left has abandoned free speech? Why are we oppressing these poor college Republicans? And, and I, I, don't want, um, I don't want it to seem like I'm exaggerating. You can look up the San Francisco Chronicle did a, um, a piece on two college Republicans. Um, you know, it was accompanied by them posing, like rid ridiculous pictures of them posing in front of American flags um, talking about, you know, how they are trying to start a conversation on campus, totally uncritical, right after they just brought this total clown, you know, this person that has a history of harassing and bullying people to campus. Um, so that's the first thing to say, is that so much of the discussion on free speech has been driven by far-right talking points that have been uncritically adopted 
by um, what we're what are you know what are supposed to be trustworthy news sources and et cetera, like all of that, you know. And you know, I'll just say like to me as someone who um, I wasn't, poli- I mean, I was a kid and I wasn't political during the um, the run up to the Iraq War. And I, my sense from talking to people who were political at the time is that this is a similar feeling of like the right wing putting out total nonsense and it just being uncritically adopted by the liberal mainstream. So, so after we cut through that, then we can start to look at the responses and, and think more critically about them. So like I said, one of the responses has been by the university administration which under the old chancellor was attempting to stop the far right speakers from speaking through, you know, this or that bureaucratic maneuver. Um, you know, Ann Coulter, they tried to put her in a building that was way far away from campus um, on a day when no students would be on campus because it was the, the dead day when students are studying before finals. So they did this and that thing um, to try to stop the speakers. Um, they did something similar with David Horowitz, both of whom are totally vile. And we can talk more about what our evaluation should be of the administration for doing that. The um, That chancellor, for that reason and a bunch of other reasons, he was in, involved in all sorts of scandals, resigned and was replaced by a new chancellor, Carol Christ, um, whose response has been to, uh, like I said, militarize the campus, spend literally millions of dollars on police to occupy and defend areas of campus where far-right speakers will be, including Ben Shapiro, Milo Yiannopoulos. And the the thing that, you know, it's was beyond disturbing to walk onto campus and see literally hundreds of police on Sproul Plaza, the birthplace of the free speech movement. You know, there's all this history behind it. And what was also infuriating was the fact these millions were being spent on overtime pay. And literally what they, that means is that the police just go to the campus, they stand there, don't do anything, and they get paid for it. And that was really just insulting in the middle of like fights over um, tuition hikes, over campus workers saying that they're not being paid enough, that the university won't give them a fair, um, a fair wage. Um, that was really striking. I guess the other, the other thing that we can talk about, and I'll, I'll stop because I don't know if you all want to get into this yet, but um, is about the debates on the left about how to respond to this, about whether, you know, and there's all sorts of questions about do we, at, do we ask the university to stop these speeches should we try to shut down the speeches ourselves? At what point does it become principally or pragmatically okay to use violence against either speeches or, you know, the the real violence that's coming from the other side? Um, and, you know, all of that is its own discussion. Okay, well, I think to get into what you were just talking about, it might be useful to be really concrete about it. Um, the When Berkeley sort of took center stage was really when Milo Yiannopoulos uh, came to campus and was essentially shut down by thousands of people protesting, but it became kind of a flashpoint nationally because also the images were of broken windows and it became a whole debate. I think that's where people started talking about Antifa as if like somehow... This was some horrible new trend. Um, And so it might be useful for you to kind of break down what the campus left response was to his visit um, and how some of those debates played out concretely in that context. And what do you think? Do you think it was good 
that Milo was shut down? And what do you think was successful in shutting him down? And what were some of the what was some of the aftermath? Yeah. So just to set the stage for that, um, Donald Trump was elected the November before that. Um, it was a shock to everybody. Um, conversations and protests about how to move forward began immediately. And um, groups kind of came together in the weeks that followed to plan for a big protest on campus on January 20th, J20, the day of the inauguration. Um, so that protest happened. Um, I don't remember exactly the number. It was probably around 2,000 people were there. Um, we had a list of speakers, and it was a good event. Um, and then a week, I guess, two about two weeks later, on February 1st, was when Milo's planned visit was. Um, and, you know, some of the groups that were involved in the J20 organizing flyered the campus to say, come out to Sproul Plaza, which was right next to the venue where he was supposed to speak to protest. Um, you know, I wrote an article for the Daily Cal saying, don't let this hate go unanswered. Um, this was also shortly after at the, um, I want to say at UC Santa Barbara, um, Milo and the pharma rich boy, Martin Shkreli, um, <laughs> were supposed to talk and they were shut down by students there. And I pointed to that as an example as like, look, this is our campus. We um, are allowed to decide uh, whether people are going to come onto camp. And, you know, there was a real concern that Milo was going to target undocumented students. This wasn't widely reported, but the university sent an email to the Berkeley College Republicans saying we have a concern that Milo is going to out undocumented students on campus. Um, Which so, they never shared with the student body, right? No, that they concern? didn't. Yeah, no, I mean, there was, um, from what I remember, there may have been one or two vague emails sent about people should feel safe on campus. Here's who you can contact if you feel unsafe. <laughs> uh, we should all respect free speech. It's, you know, yeah, they never shared any of this information with the student body um, and it hasn't been widely reported, which is unfortunate because then people walked away from this being like, oh, Milo's just a clown. Why don't you just ignore him? Well, there's certain people who can't just ignore, you know, a real threat to their lives um, and certain people who won't allow that to happen. So um, anyway, uh, the day of uh, there were anywhere from, uh, 1500 to 2000 people on Sproul Plaza who came to protest Milo. Um, the protest, um, just to give like a chronology, the protest was pretty disorganized. There were like different things happening. There was a small group of people closer to the venue who were chanting. There was another group of people a little further away who were doing like a, um, like a queer dance party. Um, there were people who were watching and who were holding signs and um, basically, you know, people were out there talking, protesting. We, there was not really a concerted attempt to block the entrances to the building, um, but there were people who were surrounding at least the main part of it. Um, and that basically continued for about an hour. Um, and then um, very suddenly, you know, at least to me and to other people who were standing there, uh, a group of about, 50 to 100, I'd say, people dressed in all black kind of came onto the plaza and went. Um, oh, and I should say, you know, the police had b barricaded the building with like multiple metal fences, all chain linked. Um, you know, they were all there were riot cops stationed uh, around the venue. Um, these people. Uh, so anyway, the, you know, whether you want to call them Antifa or people using black box tactics, whatever they came, they um removed the fences very quickly and they were very coordinated. I'll, I'll say this, like they were probably the most coordinated group on that day. Um, they removed the fences um, and then they uh, seemed to have an aim of breaking the windows to set off the fire alarm. 
Um, and they specifically, and you know, I, I don't know if this was intentional or not. They broke the windows of the Amazon store that had kind of been attached onto this venue. Um, the venue being MLK, uh, union, um, so there's some, I feel like Something there's... Something about an Amazon store yeah, attached to it. And I'm I okay. think there's some irony in that that's <laughs> yeah. worth acknowledging. Um, so the fire alarm goes off. Um, and what's interesting is that the police aren't really doing anything um, at this point. They're, you know, they start, they get up on the loudspeaker and say, disperse, this is an unlawful assembly, blah, blah, blah. I did see them start shooting. And this was very strange and, and like bizarrely violent. They just started shooting rubber bullets, it seemed, into the crowd. I don't know if they were rubber bullets or paintballs um, into the crowd. Um, the uh, the folks, the Antifa folks, they, um, uh, they pushed over a generator, which had been powering a floodlight that the police had set up. And the generator fell over and then caught on fire and burst into, it was burst into flames, which was actually pretty scary. Um, and so then people kind of backed away from it um, because the police were saying, go away. They, you know, there was um, the, the Antifa folks were kind of closer to the venue and then there was a open space and then other people were further back. Um, and I will say that it did seem that a large majority of the crowd stuck around. Um, and then eventually uh, the people that I was with after 30 minutes of be waiting there, we decided to leave because um, it wasn't clear what was going to happen next. Uh, my understanding is that eventually the Antifa folks marched away down um, Shattuck um, Avenue in Berkeley. Um, and the the police, I think, may have made a few arrests that night. Arrests that night. And yeah. who whose decision was it to cancel the event? So um, my understanding is that the university canceled the event after the windows were smashed. Yeah. So I guess the, right. And then... If you could talk more then about the aftermath and what effect this had, because one of the debates that I think that's been had is, one, I think there's sometimes a false dichotomy between you're either for sort of echoing these false notions of free speech, meaning we just ignore these, you know, provocateurs and far-right speakers, or it's by any means necessary to disrupt even even with a small minority of people. And that's, um, I think it's it's... It hurts the movement when we see those as being the only two choices. But also, I guess, if in the in the aftermath of, of Milo's visit, where this visit was shut down, was the impact actually to strengthen the confidence of folks on the left or, or yeah, what impact did it have? I don't think it strengthened the confidence of people on the left, um, which was disappointing to say the least. Um, and it, it set us up for a very challenging semester where there was a lot of fear, where there are more fights um, in the streets and, and stuff like that. Um, so one of the reasons that one of the, and I mentioned this earlier, one of the most troubling things was the reporting that was done on that day. Like, like y'all said, it was, you know, smashed windows, fires, you know, set. Um, everyone obviously obsessed over the tweet that Donald Trump set out about pulling federal funds from Berkeley um, I'm at the law school, so there were all these like professors and students talking about, oh, can he do that? Does he have the constitutional power to do that? And, you know, it was just like everyone seemed to miss the point, like and did not talk about the lessons that we should learn from this. Um, I read almost every kind of mainstream news report about that night and literally not a single one of them talked about any of the protesters who were out for an hour mm -hmm. before all of this started. Uh, the report that um, I helped write for Socialist Worker 
was, as far as I could tell, the only news report that actually said there were 2,000 people out there um, who were protesting and who didn't want this to go unchallenged. And also just to say, um, to some extent, uh, the the actions of large groups, the actions of large groups of people um, shouldn't always be counterposed to the actions of smaller groups of, um, you know, militants or whatever you want to call them. Um, I am skeptical, you know, so like I said, the, the Antifa folks started breaking the windows. The police didn't really stop them. And I am skeptical that they uh, would have made that same decision if there weren't 2000 students and other protesters mm -hmm. there. Um, and it was, you know, and I think that that, that role that people played, um, and the fact that they came out there determined to not let Milo's hate go unanswered, I think that got left out uh, of, um, you know, almost all of the, the reporting and discussion that followed. And the, uh, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. And I mean, the, the last thing to say about that is, um, I think that not only did the liberal reports and the right wing um, kind of counterpose or ignore the, um, the the protesters that were there, even some of the Antifa folks did that. And in a an op-ed for the Daily Californian written by um, some people who identified themselves as members of Berkeley Antifa um, who were there on that day, they said that they stand by what they did. They pointed out all of the terrible things that Milo did and was threatening to do and said, we were there to defend our community mm -hmm. um, and to defend the other protesters. And I think that both speaks to what I find, you know, admirable about like my comrades on the left um, and, you know, everyone who's, who wants to stand up to injustice and feels deep anger at what's happening with the far right and what the far right is doing. And it also shows how the real problems that um, come with that idea that your role is to defend everybody else. Right. Um, it, it smacks of elitism. It smacks of um, a dismissal of the possibility of building a mass movement. Um, and that's not to say it's very difficult to build. It is very difficult to build a mass movement against fascism. Um, but if you start from the position that it's impossible and that you just have to defend people, then you're going to lose. Right. Well, that really gets to what I was just about to ask you about, which is that, it seems that we need to disentangle two different things. One is the media response, which we can't control the media response. And even where there have been mass protests of thousands of people who've come out against the far right in Portland, um, in Charlotte, I mean, Charlottesville was really where it began to change. Um, but like in a number of these cases, the media reports on what it wants to. It will literally go out of its way to find someone who smashes a window or mm -hmm. whatever it is and to mischaracterize what people are doing. So there's that experience, um, which we can't quite control for. But then there's the question of what's the experience of the people who do come out to protest and are looking for a way to fight back if they're on these demonstrations and how do we think about what kinds of strategies and tactics help build people's confidence and build that bigger um, kind of movement? I think that that gets to some of what you talked about. Like when you look at Charlottesville, it clearly was a combination of mass protests, but also people feeling like they needed to physically defend their space and having people there to physically defend them, you know, was really, you know, important when they were facing off against these people. So I know that's that's kind of a very broad, <laughs> complicated question, but like what kinds of lessons do you feel like you and other people on the left have learned over the last year, year and a half of this struggle? 
Yeah, so there's a couple things uh, I want to say about that. Um, one is that this is what happened after Charlottesville, particularly, I think, is um, symptomatic of what a lot of mobilization and movement building has looked like in the Trump era, um, which is that there have been mass um, spontaneous mobilizations against outrageous things that the right wing has done. Um, so, uh, you know, the airport protests, uh, protests against um, various immigration policies that Trump has put in place. And then Charlottesville, which, you know, Trump didn't kill anyone in Charlottesville, but he helped embolden that movement. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there was outrage that later on he said, you know, I'm, the Nazis are nice people too. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, uh, it was a wake-up call to a lot of people um, and it was also a wake-up call to, you know, all of us or the organized left that we need to take this seriously and we need to get, you know, we need to get people together to do something. And I think that in Boston, in Berkeley, in San Francisco, that happened in a lot of places. So that was one lesson is that we have to um, kind of be ready um, that like people will move into action and we have to be there to help lead that. Um, one of the other, I don't know if this is exactly a lesson, but I think it's a history that we should draw on. And it was on the last episode of, uh, or at least the, the episode of Better Off Red I just listened to, which was about um, clinic defenses and the fight for um, the right to choose, is that the, the difficulty, but the importance of building defenses of Planned Parenthood and other um, reproductive rights and abortion providing clinics um, is similar in a lot of ways to the the task we face in fighting the far right. One, um, the anti-choice movement and the, you know, its links to like the misogynist trolls on the internet mm -hmm. actually have a lot of direct links and are part of the far right. Um, the, you know, people will probably remember the whole Gamergate scandal and the role that Miley Annapolis played in that. Mm -hmm. um, this kind of, um, there's some flaws in this, but the understanding of the alt-right or the far-right as the internet trolls come to life, that harkens to this idea of all of these, all of the like misogynistic YouTube commenters who like, you know, um, ideologically at the very least, they kind of play a role in um, far-right and like in emboldening the far-right. So, um, so yeah, that's just to say that I think that there's a lot of lessons to be drawn from that history. Um, clinic defenses are a place where you have to be ready to get into confrontation, where you have to think about the same tactical questions of, you know, how do we um, do this in a way that's going to be supportive to patients and supportive to people, but also show them that you don't have to be afraid that we can, we can win. I think that last part actually is really centrally um, one of the lessons we've learned is that we have to create environments where people can take action and can feel like they have taken a step forward. And that was what was really difficult uh, for so long in Berkeley was that taking action and feeling like it was meaningful and, and seeing that it was meaningful was really difficult when the stakes seemed so high. Um, when the stakes were that you might, you know, you want to go protest and protest has always been a way for people to meet, to network, to get organized, to express anger. It's hard to feel, you know, safe or not even safe, feel, feel like it's worth going out to do that stuff if you're worried about getting attacked.
lessons that I think are really important to try to draw out. And this is my impression from not being in Berkeley, but I'm curious what you think. I think that among people who do understand that there's been, you know, that the first year or the first six months of Trump's uh, presidency saw this dramatic and seemingly unstoppable rise of the far right, which and then there was a shift after Charlottesville. I think that's often understood as almost entirely a spontaneous thing. There's mass horror at Charlottesville and then in Boston and a series of other places, there's, you know, that there's mass protests against it. And there's a, that is probably 60 to 75% true. But I think what can be missed also is that there, even before the attacks in Charlottesville, there had been shifts going on on the ground strategically about, so that if some, for instance, if, if I'm not mistaken, the big rally in Berkeley that happened in like a week or two after Charlottesville, this had been planned in advance because it was, you know, to, to confront a far right gathering similarly in Boston. And it was coming out of seeing what in the spring, in the aftermath of Milo's visit to Berkeley was, seems to me up until this point, the low point, and there may be many more low points to come, but where, you know, um, there was a series of street battles on the streets of Berkeley where our side was, in the, at least in the latter case, outnumbered. But also where even though people, people who were heroically trying to confront the, the, the Nazis, but what was, you know, the idea was in, in popular consciousness, it seemed like, again, either you ignore Nazis or relatively small bands of people engage in street fighting with them. And it seemed to, and, the, and then there's been a real shift in an understanding that it is possible to build um, thousand strong protests um, against them, not to gloss over the challenges of that, but if you can maybe talk about what, what the kind of conscious organizing that went, that went into help, helping to make that happen. Yeah. So um, after that kind of first uh, semester ended with um, Milo kind of kicking it off and then Ann Coulter and the police ending it, uh, I, a far right group called a rally for August 27th called No to Marxism in America, which, you know, is obviously code for we don't like the Jews, we don't like black people, um, we don't like, you know, the left and so on. And a few different groups decided that we need to get organized to counter this, um, even though we were at a low point at that time. And, you know, on the day of, there ended up being multiple rallies with various orientations in terms of how confrontational they wanted to be, what politics were on display. Just to say the end point of this is that some 7,000 people came out in Berkeley um, to, to protest, um, which, you know, I haven't lived in Berkeley for a long time. Everyone that I talked to is the largest demonstration they could ever remember. Um, probably the, the only one that matched that were some of the first anti-war demos back in the early 2000s. The protests that I was involved in organizing, which brought out, I think, between three and 4,000 people, um, kind of began with two um, different um, strands. One was a coalition of left groups came together, um, the ISO, um, La Voz de los Trabajadores, um, Democratic Socialists of America, and some other, and we made a concerted attempt to reach out to different campus organizations, to reach out to other community and faith organizations to say, we need to not let the hate go unchallenged. Um, and then some labor militants responded the same way, people who were with 
SEIU, which represented service workers and city workers in Oakland, um, the Berkeley Federation of Teachers, which uh, was a, the Teachers Union in Berkeley, labor militants, and those organizations had the same idea that we need to get organized. They started coordinating among different labor unions. And those two strands kind of came together. Um, and these are because of long-term relationships that all of these groups had built over the course of years, doing all sorts of campaigns and, and movement building. Um, and over the summer, um, these groups met as a coalition to plan the rally, to discuss tactics, um, to begin building a list of co-sponsors, um, to talk about what speakers should be put on display. There is an emphasis on solidarity and there is an emphasis, like I said, on making sure that we can mobilize as many people as possible and, you know, this was pre-Charlottesville, so our we were thinking it would be great if we could get a few hundred people to come out to challenge mm -hmm. the far right, you know? Well, that was the state of things in right, Berkeley. Right, and And getting a few hundred people out would have actually been a really big deal. Um, and, you know, our idea was to be non-confrontational. We didn't want to go rally at—and just, by the way, the far right chooses to rally at MLK Park, right? And they do this purposefully um, to provoke people. And, you know, they call them free speech rallies and all this nonsense. Um, so we didn't want to rally right at the park because we didn't know, you know, this is part of the problem with the whole notion of Antifa defending people. We didn't know what they were going to do. They decide things unilaterally. We didn't know if there was going to be violence from them. We didn't know if there was going to be violence from the far right or the police who are definitely um, much more of the problem. Um, we wanted to communicate to all of the Berkeley left, people who consider themselves progressives, people, you know, for whom in the era of Trump, they wanted to go out and protest that you can come to this and you can be opposed to, to the far right. Um, so that was the focus of the organizing and that was the focus of the discussion. There were a lot of debates about tactics. Um, and then Charlottesville happened. Heather Heyer was murdered. That set off a lot of spontaneous mobilizations across the country, but yes, which was all um, backed up by serious organizing. Um, either serious organized groups called mobilizations or in our case, serious organized groups had already called a mobilization and we tried to broaden the scope of it to bring in as many people as possible. Um, and you know that meant doing a lot of things that was very new to me. I mean, we had to do security coordination. There was a lot of discussion about, you know, we need to have a team of people who are ready to deescalate, who are ready to identify provocateurs, who are not looking for a fight, but who are looking to, you know, organize the people around them to push people out of our space. You know, the importance of like occupying and taking our physical space was, um, was high on our minds. Um, so, you know, all of that led up to what was a very successful rally the day of, um, with speakers from a bunch of different organizations, um, uh, with Holocaust survivors speaking about why it was so important to challenge the far right. Um, and it also led many people, I think, to confront the, um, and this is something I said uh, when I spoke at the rally, to confront the the uselessness of the liberal establishment in challenging the far right. Um, and this was both uselessness in terms of, you know, their passive non-support for the rally and their active opposition to the rally. So the mayor of Berkeley, Jesse Aragin, who is, you know, supposed to be the liberal mayor, you know, is the youngest mayor in Berkeley, in Berkeley's history and all of that. Um, he repeatedly, he, him and the city council repeatedly told people to not come to the protest. Chancellor Chris did the same thing. Um, the city council passed, um, uh, a law granting emergency power to the city manager to regulate protests, to stop certain kinds of assemblies, to prevent people from bringing things to assemblies. 
um, we had planned to use a lawn um, on the campus, which is a few blocks away from the far right. The day, the two days before the rally, um, the chancellor and the UCPD announced, the um, University of California Police Department announced that that lawn would be barricaded and that no one would be allowed into that space. Pushing just, us just to be clear, while the f- the far right fascists were f- yeah not being impeded in their plans to right. be an MLK part. Okay, gotcha. right. Um, and we were pushed onto the street, which is, you know, and it's for people who live in Berkeley, it's Oxford street. It's one of the busier, um, kind of thoroughfares in the city, um, which presented all sorts of new security problems for us. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, you know, there was both this passive, you know, don't ignore the Nazis and they'll go away. That kind of same old ideology. And then the active intervention, um, of the police directed by, um, the liberal politicians, um, And all of this is to say that without the organizing that we had done beforehand, I really don't know what would have happened that day. I don't know if far-right provocateurs would have gotten into the crowd and started things. I don't know if people would have been able to organize while the police are shutting shutting down all the public spaces. Um, So that that really should not be understated. And um, it's only thanks to publications like um, Socialist Worker, like Jacobin, that have been doing reporting on all of these different mobilizations in the fight against the far right than anyone would even know unless they were there in person and saw the organizing that was happening. And what was the result in terms of what happened with the actual far right rally? Oh, I mean, it was, it was really pathetic. So, um, don't bury the lead. Come yeah, on. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that rally happened. And then kind of after the rally was over, we said some of us are going to go now and march in that direction. And, um, you know, because that's something that a lot of us wanted to do. And so that march started um, separately. There was a march by a group of um, uh, a few different uh, groups that I know had some relationship to the Black Lives Matter movement in town. Uh, I think one of them was Surge standing, showing up for racial justice. Yeah. And then also um, a group of black priests. I don't know what churches they were with. Um, they had a march that was headed to the park. And then at the park, there were a group of, um, you know, folks who identified as Antifa. Um, and the police had kind of set up barricades there to protect the far right. Um, and I say that intentionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, they, once the protest groups arrived to the park and Antifa was kind of at the head of that, there was kind of a united front that that formed between the groups and they took the park and there was very little resistance. The far right fled because they were completely outnumbered um, uh, and the police, you know, weren't willing to take that risk of, of trying to stop those people. You know, especially, you know, I think when you see a bunch of like black priests being like, we're going to fight against this hate yeah. with, you know, to like go after them, especially in Berkeley would have, would have looked really bad. So, you know, a combination of factors led to the, um, um, the far right being politically defeated that day. Well, it seems like those are interesting bookends, the first visit of Milo and then that demonstration. And one of the things that really stood out to me that you said when you were discussing that first demonstration was that there were like a couple thousand people who were there protesting, but that there was no clear, that it was very disorganized, no clear plan. And so that, you know, when the sort of Antifa forces showed up, they were actually the most organized. And, you know, the other thing you said that really struck me was that a lot of these protests have followed the kind of pattern of the Trump era where you have these spontaneous 
upsurges that don't have a lot of organization to them. And so, you know, this is less a question, more a comment. It just seems like that's an important lesson that you guys operationalized about like putting that organization in place. And I think the question of how we deepen that um, is going to be really is going to be really key. going to ask is kind of a follow-up to that and maybe is kind of a starting to close is that everything you're describing and that we're talking about sort of shows going from like a really weak point where our side I think was forced on the defensive um and you know the right you know Trump takes power everybody's disoriented no one's expecting it and then this far right that's been organizing for a while suddenly has their coming out party and our side is sort of put on the defensive, and then it seems like around Charlottesville and Berkeley and Boston, the tide kind of turned and they were pushed back. But you're also talking about these sort of provocations and this sort of constant attack at Berkeley. Like, what are your thoughts about the current state of the far right? And, you know, do you think that there's a potential for a resurgence of that? Um, do you think that we've actually kind of pushed them back for a while? What, what do you kind of think of in terms of the tasks going forward? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to say. Um, I I think that there is kind of regroupment happening, and you know, across the political spectrum right now, like the the far right. I mean, just as like a data point, the, there was recently a lot of political machinations happening within the Berkeley College Republicans. From my understanding, just from the reports that have come out, the kind of far right cadre that was leading that group was ousted. But like I said, I don't think that people should feel kind of complacent about that because again this era has shown that so-called moderate right wingers will shift far to the right if the if the movement is strong enough um and if they feel emboldened enough um and on the left you know i think that there's still a sense uh, there is still a disorganization and what that means for the organized left is the same thing that it meant um before is that you have to be ready um that doesn't mean that every single time the right wing comes out, you have to call a counter demonstration, but it means that you have to, that has to be a question, like how tactically are we going to operate? And the eye always has to be, how are we going to get our side as mobilized and organized as possible? So when there are opportunities to do that, it has to be, that is an opportunity that we cannot afford to miss. The one other thing I was going to say, and I mentioned this earlier, um, were that a lot of staff members raised concerns about their safety, um, the student's safety, about coming to campus and this is a workplace issue. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like I mentioned, the union workers, uh, the, the workers with AFSCME Local 3299 um, called the UC wide strike in early May, and they were joined by UPTI and the California Nurses Association. Um, and I think that those workers will hopefully play a big role in, in fighting and pushing back against the far right uh, in the times to come. And right now there's ongoing organizing in Berkeley about how do we support the union? How do we support the rank and file? Um, you know, these people are largely people of color, mostly women, um, people who have suffered the brunt of the housing crisis in the Bay Area. Um, and they, um, they have been completely, I mean, 
like I said, I think the student protesters have been left out of the spotlight and, and ignored in the report in the mainstream media. There's no mention of the, the workers at the university, absolutely no mention. Um, and that's something that the, the left should play a role in changing um, because the workers are opposed to the far right um, and we should help them to build their power so that they can show that. Well, just um, that would have been a great way to close, but I had to step on it with a follow-up thing because one, there's so many things that happened in the past year and a half at Berkeley that we didn't get to talk about. But just following up on that, one of them was this attempted free speech week that happened in the beginning of the fall that ended up being a bit of a fiasco, but also it saw another invasion of the right wing and security uh, and massive police presence on campus. But I bring it up in light of what you were just saying, because one of the tactics that emerged was a was called a boycott. A no, a, many professors saying we are students and we are not safe on this campus. And it, but it was, all, you know, and, and we're refusing to hold classes on campus during that week, which has elements of job action that's that's both tapping into a safety issue and the need for people to actually come together in the face of this attack, but also putting direct pressure on the university. And it just seems like that may be something in the future for people to be thinking about as both a way, as a way to bridge workplace actions with the state of fear and protest against, you know, right wingers coming to coming to campus in that kind of a way. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that um, uh, there were, uh, you know, longtime progressive faculty who began to organize that boycott. They linked up with the um, with the other student organizers who were organizing around the so-called free speech week. Um, and again, like that shows the importance of like, if you are a progressive, if you are a leftist on campus, there are things that you can do and there are people who are getting organized. Um, and uh, it's always the right moment to try to get linked up and to start planning things. Um, and, you know, the boycott was important because it was the first time that the faculty moved into action that wasn't simply, you know, signing a letter, um, you know, which they had done in the run up to Milo's first visit. They, there was a faculty a letter going around signed by many faculty members asking the university to cancel the speech. This was a, a job action. Um, and uh, that sets the stage and that starts conversations for hopefully ongoing organizing, um, you know, in the, in the semesters and years to come. All right, now we can wrap up on that. So thanks so much for, for coming. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on. This was great to talk about. Yeah, hopefully we can have you back. And I think this is going to be an ongoing struggle. Just saw that, you know, they are literally going to be building tent cities for migrant children, literal concentration camps in Texas. So I think there's many arenas to explore about the fight against the right going forward. And I really appreciate you coming on and also just the work that you and the other folks have done. Absolutely. <laughs> Right, that's our episode. Special thanks to Maria Silvestri producing this one. Um, Eric Ruder, our other producer. Uh, and as always, tell your friends about us. Wherever you listen to us on podcasts, try to like us, do all those good things, spread the word, and see you next week.